Our guest today is Dr. Annette Olson. Annette started her career as a field biologist, studying the social behavior of the long-nosed mongoose on a remote island in West Africa. But a civil war in Sierra Leone brought an end to her mongoose studies and started her off on a 30-year career working for federal agencies and nonprofits in Washington, D.C. Now she's building Climate Steps, her own nonprofit organization with a mission to supply people with impactful personal, social, and political actions to fight climate change. It's a great interview. We covered a lot of topics, including are they called mongoose or mongooses? Are individual climate actions worthwhile? The problems with some of the most commonly recommended climate actions? What climate steps have the biggest impact and how to find the right climate steps for you? And the importance of discussing your climate actions with your friends and family. Welcome to How to Stop Climate Change. I'm your host, David Butler, and I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Russell, and my producer and daughter, Keaton Butler. How are you doing today, Matt? I am great, David. Thanks very much. All well here. We've got a nice sunny weekend ahead of us in Ireland, so I'm looking forward to getting out and doing some hiking along the, the West Coast and maybe hitting the Cliffs of Moher. How are you doing over there? I'm doing really well. Very yeah, good. I, I uh, like the cliffs of Moher, Moher. <laughs> uh, but they're a little terrifying to me. And uh, one time when I was visiting in Ireland, my um, I had my kids with me and my daughter was, I think, uh, 17 years old and I could not keep her from, um, you know, getting too close to the edge and acting like a moron. It was terrifying. I was really glad to be down <laughs> off of them. Yeah, and thankfully right at the bottom is Doolin with some wonderful pubs. So it's a great place to settle in and enjoy it if it does get too windy. Yeah, good. And um, I'm delighted to say we have Annette Olson with us today from Climate Steps. She's joined us to have a chat today about what she's at. Hi, Annette. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Hi, Annette. Thanks for being on the show. How are things? Where are you, where are you calling us from, Annette, today? Uh, Washington, D.C., where actually the sun just came out, so I'm very happy. Excellent. It's been rainy here, yeah. Well, I'm going to pick up straight away. I was reading your bio, having a look at some of the things you've done, and we'll get into that now in a little bit more detail. But straight away, I got caught with the idea that you started off studying mongoose or mongoose, mongooses? Mongooses, mongooses, yeah. What brought you that direction? Um, so I grew up on a farm, and my but my mom was a librarian, and she always was... Uh, giving me sci-fi books, fantasy books, and she gave me the Tarzan series one time. So I always had this goal to leave the Texas farm and go do something exotic. So I decided to go to grad school and work in tropical biology. But when I got to grad school, I got very interested in how animals cooperate, how they work together, you know, in social groups, which actually applies to climate change later, but how animals work together. Um, so one of the animals I first started thinking of, of studying was wasps and how they work together to build nests. And then I was like, ah, oh, wasp, you know, okay, that's a little um, interesting, but I can't travel to the tropics. So somebody suggested I study mongooses. And when I started investigating them, I was like, hey, I could really do this. And um, there are 31 species of mongooses in the world. And a third of them are very social. And one good example is the meerkat. Most people don't realize a meerkat is a type of mongoose. Oh, and I did not that. Yeah, yeah. And if you know the meerkat story about how they uh, form these multi-adult groups and when they go out and forage for food they take turns being guards and um and they'll babysit each other's young etc so that really fascinated me so i looked into it and there was a species of mongoose that hadn't been studied that was supposedly social that lived in a, a rainforest in sierra leone west africa um, and coincidentally i went to the university of miami and the University of Miami had a field site there. So um, next thing you know, I'm there for a two-month tryout to see if I could handle it and if I could find the mongooses. It's an island in the middle of a river, so I was dropped off um, by a truck, 
crossed the river and was on the island for two months. And if that truck had still been there that first week, I might have turned around and gone <laughs> back, but it wasn't. I was there for two months, and um, by the end of two months, I was absolutely in love with the rainforest and the mongooses. I saw them, and I felt like I could do it. So I went back to Miami, raised some money, and then went um, and spent a year and a half there. I was supposed to be there for over two years, um, but then there was the Civil War. Um, in Sierra Leone, which actually started off as an invasion by Liberia. But um, it became a civil war and I had to abandon my site. And then uh, my committee um, was cautious about me going back to Africa. So I came to Washington, D.C. to study the same species of mongoose at the National Zoo. And um, can't really study social behavior though at a zoo. So I um, instead looked at their communication. And in the process of all of that, I ran out of grant money and I started working for the Smithsonian advising on exhibits. And that's how I wound up in Washington DC 30 years ago. And um, I was only supposed to be here for six months and now it's 30 years later, so. Yeah, but I wound up where I actually wanted to be because when I was in Africa, I and and in grad school, um, that's really what turned me into not just a biologist but an environmentalist, because I saw firsthand um, massive tropical deforestation and um, the hunting of monkeys for bush meat and. And I learned in class about the Amazon um, deforestation starting, um, and now it's bull headway. So in Washington, there were all of these organizations, uh, you know, conservation organizations. So I was very excited to be here because um, it gave me an opportunity to start working in my new chosen field. I had to give up mongooses for it because um, mongooses aren't endangered, um, at least my species wasn't. But um, so it worked out, it worked out. Yeah, that's an amazing life experience. It's stunning to have been in a place like Sierra Leone and um, very jealous of your, your time yeah. spent there. You mentioned that um, you then started to do some work in, or you worked with the Smithsonian and putting exhibitions and featuring exhibits there and started to work with, I'm guessing, other platforms, environmental groups or agencies in the Washington um, area. Did that grow into something or did that become something you got more involved in as time went on? Yeah, it was um, also kind of a series of changes. One thing um, that I've learned from it is to always be flexible, that there are op opportunities out there, but sometimes they don't come along quite when you want them to. Um, so you kind of have to do some long-term planning because I worked for the Smithsonian for eight years helping build exhibits, including the National Hall of Mammals. Um, which was a great, great joy to work on. Um, but it was kind of off a little from where I wanted to go in terms of conservation. But it was definitely education, outreach, and I learned so much um, and worked with great, great people. But um, let's see, I worked with the Smithsonian through 2003, and immediately after, I, uh, I did some work for um, World Wildlife Fund, and I wanted to find a permanent job in a conservation organization. But unfortunately, that was still very close after 9-11. And a lot of people turned their donations to victims of 9-11 and away from conservation organizations. So conservation organizations were very strapped for funds. So I could not get a job. I did some contract work. Um, but Instead, I wound up with the U.S. Geological Survey, which actually does have a biology division to it. And there I did some um, scientific outreach, uh, liaising with other scientists to bring data together so that it could be used broadly. So for instance, we were building databases where 
a rabies researcher up in New York could access the data from a rabies researcher in Texas. And there were some conservation components of that that were fantastic. Um, there was a bird conservation node, there was fish and freshwater. Unfortunately, Congress really didn't understand what we were about and um, cut the budget for our entire division, uh, saying that, oh, but there's Google. It's like, no, we're not doing, you know, searches, we're doing data and compiling it, but, but there's Google. So our entire division got either transferred to another location or laid off. And I was one of the people who's laid off. But that actually still worked out because then I wound up at AAAS, um, which is the American Association for the Advancement of Science, um, with a great job where I led panels to review proposals, but also um, to review the implementation of uh, research efforts uh, around the nation. So I would take a panel and would go out to uh, a university or a multi-institutional collaboration and look at how they were implementing their strategic plan and their implementation for trying to build up science within their institution. And it was fantastic. Um, I had done some strategic planning at USGS, so I was able to take that over to AAAS. So, um, so that carried me for another seven years, but in the background, climate change was always kind of looming, and it became critical to me to start implementing efforts in my own life at the time. So I did stuff like caulked my windows. I was renovating a hundred year old house and uh, everything I decided to do for the house was to be green. And then um, I installed a green roof, a living green roof, which is a, a roof of plants um, onto one section of my roof. And I thought, well, why not take a chance and blog about it in the Washington Post, see if the Washington Post would be interested in that. And they were, so I got a chance to blog about it. And that gave me a sense of, uh, hey, I can communicate through blog platforms. Then the 2016 election came about. Um, I was personally very affected by it. I was, had always thought in, my, in the background that the government was going to do something about climate change and something for the large scale needs. And then all of a sudden that stopped. And I'm saying, we can't wait another four years to take action on climate change. We have to start taking action now. It just felt like the representatives weren't going to listen to us. Uh, the executive branch wasn't going to listen to us. So I felt like, okay, I have to become an activist. I have to do something. And actually two friends of mine also had the same idea. They knew that I had been blogging about all these green things, that I had lots of practice about it, that I knew the underlying data about climate change, because I had dealt with that at USGS and with some other organizations I had helped advise. And so they asked to take me out to lunch so they could ask me, what can I do to fight climate change? And we had a great lunch and we chatted and I gave them all sorts of ideas. And then they said, Annette, you should write a blog about that. And that changed the rest of my life, um, just that lunch right there. So I want to thank Amy and Kim for doing that because I decided to start a blog. And my first blog was on Christmas Day and it was all about how to take action. Um, not what types of action to take, but really kind of the, um, that there are alternative actions out there. That's excellent. So you, you got started on that before the inauguration even. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so a little bit of urgency. You, you didn't wait around to see what President Trump did in his first hundred days. Was it worse than you anticipated? Yes. Very much. It's, it's been worse. And um, it's a little bit tricky to talk about because I'm turning Climate Steps into a nonprofit at the moment. So I have to be kind of nonpartisan. But there are 
definitely actions that individuals have taken within the government that have really done in a lot of progress that was made in the previous four years and even back to before that. So turning back action is kind of makes it doubly worse because it's it's taking things back four years, but you're also losing the opportunity of those uh, these four years to really make a difference. So um, we all have to step up. It's, it's not just the government that we have to depend on. I mean, we have less than 100 days now to the next election, but after that, there's still many months before the inauguration. If there is a change, there's a lot that we can do in between that many people don't realize. And so I, I started blogging for Climate Steps. And then shortly after, I formed the Facebook group um, six months later. And I also did a little Twitter and Instagram. But in the course of all of this, I realized that people were out there who wanted to know what to do, and they were being told to do ineffective things or things that weren't really helping the, the people become more active in doing climate action or um, actually made people feel ineffective. So one of the first things back in 2017, and, and it was very much related to the election. So of course, it's going to be a theme is that people were, when people asked, what can I do? What can I do to help fight climate change? People were told to um, vote. Well, that's two years away. And it's one day of our of our lives. What can we do in the meantime? I was also frustrated because there were all these glossy magazines and websites out there that talked about how you could take action. But it was always stuff like recycle or uh, when you write your representative, handwrite a letter. It was very personal, but it wasn't really like very useful steps. So with the blog, I wanted to let people know there were so many other things out there that they could do. That's been one of the main purposes of Climate Steps in the past three years with the blog, um, that there are a variety of actions out there that people can take that kind of are in between personal actions and collective actions. Another thing that people were told to do was to go out and protest. And up until recently with the youth-led movements, protests have not been shown to be significantly effective. But with the Women's March and the youth-led movements, um, there has been an impact. The Women's March gave the contributors and the participants a sense of power to move on and to replace the representatives, which is an, a, a useful climate step. And um, the youth-led movements have actually been shown to make an impact on um, the tone of laws and everything. But I um, have rheumatoid arthritis, so I have trouble, you know, doing long marches. And so that didn't work. And also another action that people were talking about is go out and talk to your representative. Call your representative daily. I didn't feel like representatives were really listening that much, but also I have no representative. I'm in Washington, D.C., and we do not have voting representation in Congress. Um, it's something that very few people know about, but when you come to Washington, D.C., there are license plates that say taxation without representation. <laughs> And it's very true. Um, when I moved from Virginia to DC, I, I was like, yeah, that's okay. But once I was here, I really missed being able to talk to my representative. A represent we have a delegate, but she's non-voting. Well, my senator is Mitch McConnell. And uh. I, <laughs> I'm not very optimistic <laughs> about having a conversation with him. My uncle actually knew Mitch McConnell years and years ago, and he borrowed a pesticide sprayer from my grandfather and uh, returned it in a very kind of dirty condition. Uh -huh. So 
there's some yeah. tension there with the family. <laughs> <laughs> so those are all the frustrations that I had, but um, I don't want to emphasize the frustrations. There can be useful actions in those, but there are so many others uh, actions out there that people can take. For instance, behavior change experts have noted that to do a culture change, neighbors really influence neighbors. So if you're to throw like a backyard now socially distanced potluck and, and watch a movie about climate change and invite your neighbors, that's a fantastic climate step because it gets people talking about climate change and um, it helps change the culture. Other things you can do are change the infrastructure, supporting bike shares, for instance, or car shares, testifying at city councils or making public comments and solar. A lot of people feel like they can't afford solar. And that's very true for many locations, but it's not for all, especially in a lot of urban environments now, you can just lease out your roof to a solar company. And this is very important because one, you get money for it, which is nice, but two is that it helps force utilities to change to a more distributed grid pattern. And that is a huge infrastructure change that needs to happen sooner rather than later. So there are all these ideas out there, thousands of ideas actually. And so my goal has been through climate steps to pre help present these ideas to people and let them choose based on their particular situation. You know, some people are renters versus homeowners. Some are out in rural areas versus, you know, very urban or suburban areas. Some people are younger versus older. Anyway, there are many options out there. I'm a very big fan of what you're doing with climate steps because as you articulated so clearly, it's all very practical. It's something that people can engage with in their day-to-day -day lives. They can make real differences to how they're carrying out daily actions. So um, it's very, very well researched. There's a lot of resources available through the website or through the Facebook page. Um, how much of this time is your t of your time is this taking up? How oh. are AAAS handling all of this? How have you balanced that work-life balance uh, as you as you moved into this new phase of your professional life? Yeah, um, well, I've completely moved into this new phase um, with AAAS, and and AAAS understood completely. Um, I I gave them eight months of notice, but I did leave AAAS to focus on um, turning climate steps into a nonprofit organization. I, I saved up enough money to kind of go through this valley of death where, you know, you're just starting off an organization. And um, I've been holding listening sessions about where to take climate steps next, doing that and coming up with strategic plans and filling in some holes and things and fundraising. Um, it's been very much a new focus and I'm very glad I did it. I feel like this is where I need to be and we're going to take it to the next level and we need to. So because one thing I'm finding out now that I've started presenting all of these options is that people really want to know, be able to select what's best for their situation without necessarily having to read it all, but they also want to know what the actions with the highest impact are for their particular situation. So, so we need to take next steps for climate change in terms of helping people figure out what, what actions are the highest priority. I've been presenting all these wide range of actions, many of which don't really have a carbon emissions reduction number to them because they're social actions. So it's hard to predict kind of what the impacts are for a particular action. So, so that's really the next goal is to devise these tools and to help devise, um, help support this underlying database, which is actually going to be run by a partner of Climate Steps called EarthHero. 
earthhero.org. Earth Hero calculates and tracks your emissions over time, making it easy for you to see how you're doing against global reduction targets. I actually downloaded the app on my phone. It's pretty cool. So basically, when you open the app, it asks you a few questions like where you live, how many times per week you eat meat, and how many miles you drive per year. Then it tells you roughly how your carbon footprint compares to other people in America and around the world. From there, you can browse through different actions you can take to reduce your carbon footprint, mark the ones you already do to track your progress, and set targets for reducing your emissions. Like Annette said, that's earthhero.org. Or you can find Earth Hero on the App Store. You've mentioned um, a few of your favorite kind of actions that people can take. Like, what what are some of the most impactful? Yeah, so there are kind of three areas. The one is changing the infrastructure. Anything you can do to change the underlying infrastructure, where whether it's the roads and what's used on the roads and all that tar or, or narrowing the roads and putting in bike lanes or bus lanes. Um, you can do that by supporting the bus yourself, by talking to your neighbors, by testifying in front of the city council, um, trying to add to public comments and, and things like that. Um, solar, even wind turbines, et cetera. Anything you can do to change infrastructure. Then um, politics. There are steps you can take within politics one of which is campaigning to replace a representative who is not stepping up to the plate regarding climate change or anything else, really, or running yourself, um, which is a, is a major, major ambitious climate step, but hopefully one that um, some people um, will think of, and some people have been. Um, we have a lot of grassroots movement the past couple of years of people running for office themselves. Um, the third most important thing is creating a ripple effect where it's not just what you're doing, but that other people are aware and hopefully beyond just one circle of your friends, but multiple circles that goes out. One simple example is your computer uses a lot of energy, but also cloud computing uses a lot of energy. So deleting your email is an easy step because it actually saves you know, energy. Uh, not trading in Bitcoin, that's an important step. But those are things that most people aren't aware of that you're doing. So you need to spread the word that you're doing that. Um, but other things are also more visually impactful, especially in your neighborhood, like putting a sign in your front yard or um, hanging your laundry. I like to call it the laundry flag, not just hanging it outside, but letting your neighbors know why. Another important step is fighting, zoning about no vegetable gardens. Uh, a couple just took the state of Florida to court. They lost the court battle about that, but as a result, the representatives in Florida changed the law. So now people can have gardens in their front yard. So things that really have multiple layers of impact, um, whether it's on your neighborhood or whether it's even further out nationally, regionally. And one important thing to try to do is get the media involved. If you're having an event, um, invite the media. All these things that help help spread the word. I had no idea that there were zoning laws to say that you couldn't have a vegetable garden in your front yard. Like, what kind yeah. of grouchy person <laughs> came up with that? Like, they were so offended by by yeah. a vegetable garden. Yeah. Well, there was this phase, you know, especially in the fifties and 60s of suburbia where the lawns had to be manicured and and everything had to be a smooth grass lawn or things like that some people in washington dc itself there was a woman who uh, was taken to court about having tomato plants in her front yard but she was able to argue that actually they're a fruit not a vegetable so she was able to get by on that so yeah Fair play to her. I'm sure there's still plenty of homeowners associations all over the country that would object to the planting of vegetables or even the hanging out of laundry 
or otherwise. Anything yeah. that doesn't present that perfectly manicured Norman Rockwell version of suburbia, yeah. um, I'm sure, is a challenge. Um, you, it makes me think that you started Climate Steps as a community-based organization. And a lot of what you're saying, I can see how that resonates with a local community. But as we've been talking, we've hit suburbia, urban environments, rural environments, just the political class that's involved. Has it now grown beyond community or has your definition of community changed as your audience or your, your focus has changed? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Climate Steps is growing. It was starting to grow exponentially before COVID and now it's kind of leveled off into a steady 45 degree angle growth, um, however you put it. My original audience was always kind of middle-class America because besides the very rich um, who aren't going to be paying attention to my blog anyway, um, there were the ones who can make the most impact. Um, we're the ones that cause most of the carbon, so we're the ones that can change. Um, we should step up and change things. But Climate Steps has been expanding. It's, it, I have a very strong audience in the UK, Canada, and Australia, but now uh, it's gone beyond um, urban and suburban communities. Um, I've got rural folks. I'm from Texas, so I say folks a lot. And it also includes some agriculturists now. So, and re regenerative permaculture, lots of discussion going on there. I've got scientists who've joined. I also have people from multiple other countries starting to join. And it's problematic sometimes in that what we talk about within the Facebook community as to whether or not it really can apply in Pakistan, uh, India, uh, Nigeria, Kenya, Bangladesh. These are all different communities and we're all one community because we all want to fix climate change. But how to do so will differ. So that's one of the next steps that um, I have to grapple with. And I don't think it will happen in the next year or two, but I think we will need to start having chapters of, for climate steps, like an African chapter, um, et cetera, to help really pull up the actions that could be most beneficial um, to people in different locations. We'll be right back after this short break. If you love How to Stop Climate Change, please help us grow the show and reach more people that want to stop climate change. Share it with one friend who would love it too, or give us a review on your favorite podcast app. And if you really love the podcast, please consider a small donation. To learn how to support the show, go to howtostopclimatechange.com support or patreon.com slash howtostopclimatechange. I think it's fantastic that you're offering so many different solutions to people because so often this problem just seems insurmountable and people don't know yeah. where to start. And so they they end up doing nothing. Uh, they yeah. think that personal action isn't going to make a difference because everybody talks about, well, that's not going to be enough. That's not the thing that's going to solve it. Like there's so much discussion around what is the silver bullet for solving climate change. Yeah. But that's not a reason not to start and do what you can do and what kind of fits your lifestyle. Yeah. And um, as a biologist, I'm very much concerned, not just um, especially about climate change on, on people, the impact of climate change on people, but on wildlife and everything we do helps with that. So we were talking about lawns before removing your lawn and replacing it with native species or even clover helps bees. And the more bees we have, uh, you know, the more resilience agriculture will have. Um, even one bee, you know, I, I like the idea of saving even one little colony of bees, um, or we can save a big a plot of land. It's not black or white. It doesn't have to be nothing or giant steps. There can be a gradation and everything that 7 billion people can do will make a difference um, in helping species survive into the future, to helping habitats survive. 
there's there's been this argument out in the Twitter sphere and everything about uh, individual action versus collective action and how individual action is not going to really make a difference. Um, if you change your light bulbs, it's not going to make a difference. Well, um, technically, actually, it does, but um, it saves 1.5% of carbon emissions. Switching to LEDs has already saved a lot of energy, but there's still a lot of incandescent and fluorescent lights to be replaced. 15% of our global electricity use goes to lighting. LEDs are more efficient because they convert more of that electricity into light instead of heat. The upfront cost is a little higher, but since the bulbs last longer and use less electricity, you save money over the life of the bulb. According to drawdown.org, the world will have switched almost entirely to LEDs by 2050. That will reduce CO2 emissions by roughly 16 gigatons and save about $4.5 trillion. But you don't have to wait until 2050. Go switch your bulbs out now. Um, there also is, some people are very experienced protesters or, or um, you know, they're very experienced in environmental action. Sometimes they can criticize people who are taking easy first steps, um, like not using straws. If that was the only thing somebody did in their entire life, then yeah, that would be kind of disappointing, but it's usually not. It's usually the first thing, it's right there in front of people, they can start with it, they get inspired, they come up with other actions. You know, a little bit more is always more um, beneficial. And the goal is really to help people get to think about things and to change their, um, kind of their way of, of approaching how they live and how they, but also how they interact with their communities. So I have to admit that we often do talk about uh, the problem with focusing on personal actions on this show. And that's partly because I feel that a lot of times it, the problem is pitched as Oh, we're all this. We all created this problem. You know, we're all responsible uh, yeah. for it. We all have to do our part. When in fact, you know, a handful of people and the architects of climate denial and the um, brains behind the fossil fuel industry and the politicians that they bought did 99% of the damage that has been done. So, I don't like the idea that they they have this message that, oh, you've got to do your part. Everybody's got to do their part because it's, you know, it's impossible for us to solve the problem with individual with just individual actions. However, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, take those individual actions as well. And I just don't think that they should be turned into a point of guilt for everybody. Like you should feel personally guilty about climate change you should just yeah. figure out what you can do and then and then do that and hopefully you take some individual actions and hopefully you also push back against the government and corporations in some other ways well i think that it's kind of the definition of individual action i like to call it personal actions but individuals can make an impact just by doing what you're saying there are key leaders in industry who have caused so much of this and they should be held accountable. But we only have six years, less, less than six years now to really turn the tide. So for the culture to change and for action to be taken, I think we all do need to take action uh, but it doesn't have to be personal action. It can be forcing these other entities to be held accountable, to change, to make up for past uh, damage that they've caused. We're getting towards the end now, very close to it. In fact, I should, probably shouldn't be asking you any more questions, but there's just a couple <laughs> I wanted to hit you with. I'm going to go back to climate steps. And I was looking at some of the broad um, spectrum of people you have from other parts of the world. Like it was great to see voices there from India and Africa or otherwise. And they're voices that I think are often missing in this debate. Um, now, maybe I'm just not looking in the right places, but you've already started working on this. 
is there more we can do or other areas we should look be looking at to get these diverse voices from other parts of the planet that are being even more dramatically affected on a day-to-day -day basis than we are so that we can learn some of the changes they're making rather than just have this be, oh, it's, we, we tend to look at North America, I tend to look at Europe, but there's two, four-fifths of the rest of the world's population out there and they're doing things too. I would say, so Catherine Hayhoe, climate scientist and climate communicator is very, very much that the most important thing you can do is talk about it. So sharing these stories and this information and in climate steps, um, you may be referring, Matt, to this, the, our latest article, which lists kind of the quotations from various folks from around the world who are members of the, of the climate steps community about what they see happening to their communities because of climate change. And it's matched with these graphs from uh, Ed Hawkins at University of Reading, um, which are called the Global Warming Stripes. It's a powerful story. So we need to find more tools like that, that people can share so that people understand climate change is happening now. It's going to get worse. I hate to say it before it gets better. So yeah, if y'all have ideas, suggestions, that would be great. I lo love what you've done with the stripes and stories part of the website. Um, it's well worth somebody's time going and having a look at that. Thank you for that. Thanks. The stripes and stories article they're talking about is pretty amazing. Dr. Ed Hawkins created a website at showyourstripes.info where you can select your region or country or state and see a graph that shows how the average annual temperature has changed over the last hundred years or more. Dr. Hawkins and his team used the average temperature from 1971 to 2000 as the overall average. If a year was hotter than that average, it shows up on the graph as a red stripe. The hotter it was, the darker red the stripe. If a year was cooler, the stripe is blue. So the graph is a rectangle with vertical blue and red stripes. For most areas of the world, it transitions from mostly blue on the left to mostly red on the right, showing the temperature increase over time. Members of the Climate Steps community shared their local stripes graph and a story about how they have noticed the climate changing where they live. Here are a couple of quotes from the stories on climatesteps.org. Tracy Samfer, an engineer from Somerset, UK, said, We had almost no frost last winter, so the aphids and other pests are running amok now. I've lost almost all my apples in an area famous for them. This can't be helping the local farmers. The winter was mild but very wet, with terrible flooding in places. Then it was as if someone switched off the tap overnight. It basically didn't rain for three months, not even at the height of summer. It was a spring with no rain, no April showers. That's very odd weather for us. Many of us thought we were so lucky to have such lovely weather during our lockdown. But it's definitely a sign of things changing, and the weather seems to get more extreme every year. And Jim Small, a farmer from Tennessee, said, We've seen changes in the past two decades in northeast Tennessee. This past winter, the ground never froze. So we have a banner year for destructive insects. Running a small organic farm becomes even harder now. I think it's fantastic what you're doing. I, I really like the Facebook group. There are a lot of good um, links that are shared there. I think it's a great project. I, I hope that it grows by leaps and bounds. <laughs> Thanks. Well, we've got new plans, uh, tools coming, and um, we're turning it into a publishing platform so that people can tell their stories. It's not a blog anymore. In fact, I've got two drafts I have to read from other people. Um, the great thing about the Facebook community is that they help generate ideas for climate steps. And, um, and then when I write something, I can give it to folks there and get feedback. So it's really a community approach to climate steps. Um, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of behavior change talks from people like who were involved in the health industry about how to quit smoking and things like that. How do you get people to want to start taking action? We're trying to incorporate more of that uh, into the Climate Steps website. So, you know, providing steps that are very specific, you know, helping people realize you shouldn't just say, I'm going to stop wasting food. Instead, um, say, I'm going to buy smaller plates to put food on so that I don't waste food. Or I'm going to make a grocery list. I'm going to um, decrease what I buy at the grocery store by 
five pounds or, or something like that so uh, that you have a smart, measurable action that you can take. Anyway, I kind of went off on a little tangent there, but. That's all right. That's a good yeah. example. <laughs> this challenge is something you've probably come up against um, in the past, particularly with AAAS. Changing behaviors is becoming increasingly difficult as people begin to identify those behaviors as being key parts of their personality. Right. An right. anti-vaxxer is now an anti-vaxxer. A climate denier is now a climate denier. Um, advising people or hoping that they will make a change to their diet to help with obesity, even if they don't care about climate change, are all things that you get a lot of pushback from now. And the scientific community gets a lot of that pushback across a range of disciplines. Um, are you finding that, um, I don't want to say it softly, softly, but that more engaging approach is actually making a difference and shifting some of those people who are a bit more to the extreme or are they a different audience that we need to address in a different way? I would say that so far, the people who are coming to Climate Steps are people who already want to take action. I'm definitely not really involved with the denying community. It's people who already know how to take action, but in terms of the existing Climate Steps community, a lot of the folks within, uh, within Climate Steps, they want to go out and they want to make a difference and help um, people start to think about climate change. So I'm often giving advice for how to do that. And usually it's by saying, go and look at Catherine Hayhoe's website. But what I think is useful is that even though some people um, have developed these kind of tribes of their own, with, that they're also a member of other communities and they can be approached through, um, through church, uh, through your own neighborhood, you know, having the neighborhood potlucks, etc. I've had great conversations with my neighbors. Um, my neighbors were really floored when I put in a green roof, and um, but they really were excited by the fact that I have a green roof. Um, and they'll walk by occasionally and ask, Annette, how's the marijuana growing up there? <laughs> and I'll say, yeah. um, there's not really any here, but everything else is growing great. So yeah. and another useful, useful way to um, get people to think about climate change and to want to take action is to talk about your concern for them. Talk about, um, oh, I, I've heard, you know, I've been reading about the heat waves that are going to strike your area, um, you know, in the next five years. Uh, do you have proper AC? Do you have a way of, of being able to counter that? So many people think of climate change uh, who are exposed peripherally to climate change, they think of it as the sea level rise issue. And it's, it is that, but the, the worst outcome is going to be the heat. And um, so that's a great way to, to talk to people um, about concern for how to move on. Um, uh, my dad's a cattle rancher in East Texas. I'm a veg the vegetarian daughter of a cattle rancher. And I have talked to his partner and warned and talked to him about my concern about what East Texas, how hot East Texas is going to get. And, um, you know, that he might want to start thinking in the long term about what his plans are for ranching and, and other ideas. So we're going to try a new segment on the show today to wrap up, and it's called Suggestion Box. The idea is that you can make a suggestion for anybody in the world you want to, whether you think they'll hear it or not. It can even be a suggestion just to the universe. Matt, do you have one for us today? Oh, yeah. Mine's very straightforward and absolutely, I want to say nonpartisan. Maybe it's extremely partisan. Um, I think anybody on the left who's progressive and has a real interest in climate change should pledge to withhold their vote from the Democratic Party unless Mr. Biden and his candidate commit to the Paris Accord in the first year of government with um, incentives for those 
organizations that come along with them and penalizations for those who do not. Yeah, I like that. Um, I also hope that if he does not agree to do that, they do go ahead and go vote for him anyway. Yeah. See, that's, not a, that's not a threat. That's not a threat. He'll just do whatever he wants. Anyway, there's my point. two cents. Okay, good one. What about you, Annette? Um, what I would like for folks to do, uh, communities, as they hand out COVID-19 masks to folks, that they also hand out maybe a map and or materials that would highlight the impact climate change is going to have on their community so that people are exposed. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, there's a big messaging point we're missing there. Well done. That's a great branding opportunity. Yeah, okay. hopefully. So, fingers crossed. Yeah. David. So my, uh, my suggestion for this week is not directly related to climate change, but it is related to um, science denial and propaganda and that sort of thing. So so I would like to suggest that should Joe Biden be elected president, one of his very first actions in office should be to send Homeland Security over to Rush Limbaugh's house so they can seize his Medal of Freedom that President Trump gave to him, and then they can take the... Medal of Freedom over to Bill Nye's house and give it to him. I think it's just preposterous that Rush Limbaugh got the Medal of Freedom. He's done more damage to our country than loads of people. So that's my suggestion. Yeah. And Bill Nye has done so much to support, you know, to change this country for the better. And just educate it. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much, Annette. It was great talking to you and uh, yes, really enjoyed it. Thanks. Annette, it's been a pleasure. It's been great talking with you two, too. And I'm going to be listening for more suggestions just in case some of them in the future are great climate steps that um, I can add to the list. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Stop Climate Change, please give us a review or share the show with a friend. If you'd like to support the show, please head over to howtostopclimatechange.com slash support. All donations will go to cover expenses and help me pay my daughter Keaton for all the time she spends editing and producing the show. I couldn't do this without her. If you would like to learn more about what steps you can take to fight climate change, visit climatesteps.org. Music for this episode was done by Avery Reedy, Grace Vant Hoff, The Blueberries, and myself, Keaton Butler. Our theme music is by Juices. 